is so great at reminding us about what really matters, things that are eternal, things like truth and a forever kingdom. And what brings about that forever kingdom, it's not really a what, it's a who. Christ Jesus, it is he. Well, if you're visiting with us uh, for this online service of Desert Springs Church, Uh, We welcome you. We'd love to reach out to you. We actually think uh, there's no more wise way of spending time than what you're doing right now, which is listening to the Bible and listening to songs or hopefully singing along with us at home, songs that are based on the Bible. Uh, We'd love to start a dialogue with you again, and you could do that by reaching out to us at this email, info at dscabq.com. Well, the main thing we're engaged with as a church right now is called Community Christmas. This is our annual outreach to the Navajo Reservation, actually two locations on the res, two local churches that we work with. Uh, Community Christmas is us purchasing, putting together a bunch of items, gifts. Some of those are toys. Uh, We don't give those directly to needy children. We give those to the parents so they can have the joy of giving those to their kids on Christmas Day. And then uh, Community Christmas is also purchasing staple items like food items for needy families, especially during these hard winter months. Uh, We've been doing this for a few weeks. If you're not a part of this and would like to be a part of it, you can still purchase some items to go to the res. You can do that by going to our website. Click on Upcoming. That's our 
area for things that are currently going on or things that are coming up right around the corner. And once you're there, you'll see a graphic for a community Christmas and you'll see some items that you can purchase to help out. You don't wrap those, you bring them back to church and we've got three uh, kind of drop-off location times uh, in the upcoming nine days or so. A week from today, so Sunday, uh, from nine in the morning until noon. So you can drop that off. Uh, fortunately, we can't have you here in the worship center because we're doing one more online service, hopefully one more, a week from today. So you drop your gift off, head back home, watch us uh, on the online service, or watch the service, then swing by. Uh, you'll drop them off at the front entrance. We'll have some bins out there. Or we've opened up Monday afternoon, both tomorrow and uh, a week from tomorrow, from 3 to 5.30 in the afternoon. For people that can't do that on weekends, or maybe it just works better to come back uh, to church or to swing by church after their work day. So we really want your prayers for us as leaders. Uh, like I said, this week and next week will be an online service, but we want to open church back up. We think the cap of 75 will continue through December. It's very likely. And so we really covet your prayers since it's a really complex issue. I mentioned that in my email to the church this past Tuesday as to how we could do that. Uh, do, we, do we reach out to people that are more needy populations in church? But in a sense, we're all needy. Or do we just do an online sign-up? Uh, do we work with, work with community groups or not? So there are maybe a half dozen dynamics to this. So pray for us as your leaders as we struggle through this and, and seek to open up doors for people that need to hear God's word in fellowship, in person. Then also, Pastor Randy mentioned that a lot of requests he's getting, prayer requests, have to do with loneliness. Maybe not so much the virus or fear of what's happening around us and with the virus, but just being lonely. Not having that face-to-face, in-person time with people that we love or even neighbors or co-workers. So pray for us as your leaders pray for each other and pray with me now as we pray for this service that God will use the sermon, his word, the songs we sing, the prayers we pray to transform our minds and our hearts to be more like Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father, help us in this service to be strong, to heed the promise, to be strong and of good courage, to have faith and be not afraid. Father, we ask that you would use this service, your words in the Bible, songs based on those words. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us sing together.
I'm Sandy Beauchamp. I'm one of the non-staff pastors here at DSC. Will you please pray with me? Holy Father, we sing of your might and your strength this morning to remind ourselves how great you are and how great is our need. Our need is great because we are in difficult times. But you, O oh Lord, are loving and attentive to our needs. You invite us to cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. We have so much weighing on our hearts this morning. The recent spread of the COVID virus is alarming and hitting close to home. Lord, so many are infected now. They are isolated at home or in the hospital. And with the shutdowns, Lord, we have much economic distress on our local businesses. Lord, we need you, and we cling to you. Father, we confess our discouragement to you. We are often frustrated, and some days we feel like giving up. Lord, we confess that sometimes the loudest voice in our head is fear and not faith. And if we are honest... We focus much more on, well, other things and not on your word. We are distracted and we are disconnected. We have become dried up bones and tossed about. We are an easy mark for the enemy who is seeking to devour. But you, dear Lord, you are eager to forgive and to restore us. We are known and loved by you. You know when we sit. You know when we rise. You know our thoughts. Even when we are far, far from you, you love us and you know us. Father, remind us of your steadfast love. Remind us of gospel truth. Remind us that you will never leave us or forsake us. Remind us that if we are in Christ, we are, you have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, let fear and doubt be far from us, but instead fuel our thoughts by, with faith. May trials we face today teach us more of your peace and your desires for us to be united in spirit and in truth. 
Help us to remember, recall to mind your faithfulness in our lives, how you guide us, how you clothe us, how you feed us, how you comfort us, and yes, in love, how you discipline us. Let us be a thankful people and not just on Thanksgiving Day. Confirm our trust in you. Let us walk in humble dependence on you and on you alone. For you are rich in mercy and grace. We love you and we praise you this morning. We pray this in your glorious name, Jesus. Amen. What a friend he is to us. Amen. Let us sing now of his great faithfulness to us. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Amen. Well, I'm sad that I can't be with all of you in person, but I am glad that we get to uh, be together in one sense under God's word. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to be continuing in our study in the book of Nehemiah. 
This is an exciting chapter in the, the narrative arc of the book of Nehemiah. Up to this point, we have seen Nehemiah, the governor of Judah, and his leadership leading his people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and this week he's done. So let's hear about that. We'll be reading all of chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid And they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife, Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of God from Nehemiah. Let's pray. 
Lord, we trust you. And we trust that you will use your word to glorify yourself in all of our minds and all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning, this great work, that we would all grow in a right fear of you. Whether that's a fear of your wrath that leads us to repentance or a fear of your greatness that leads us to hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the text for this morning, I feel like we need to define some terms. So I'd like to begin with some quotes from this excellent little book by Ed Welch. He's a Christian counselor. It's called, When People Are Big and God is Small. The subtitle of this book is, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. If you're not familiar with that term, the fear of man, it's one that the Bible uses often. It's the fear of other people. Sometimes we, in our day, call it peer pressure or social anxiety or people-pleasing. Welch defines the fear of man as not just being afraid of someone, but letting that fear lead to holding someone in awe being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in other people, or needing people inappropriately. He writes, Scripture gives three basic reasons why we fear other people. One, we fear people because they can expose or humiliate us. Two, we fear people because they can reject ridicule, or despise us. And three, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. Now, all of those things are legitimate concerns. People really can do those things to us. They really can hurt us. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced the pain of someone humiliating you or rejecting you or even physically hurting you. But the fear of man is when we let the fear of what are these legitimate concerns dominate us. They consume our thoughts. They motivate us to change our behavior so that we can avoid the things that we are afraid that they might do to us. So you say yes to anything and everything that anyone ever asks you to do and you are terribly overcommitted because you do not want to say no to anyone for fear that they might reject you. You obsess over what other people think about you or say about you. Do they think I'm smart? Do they think I'm pretty? How many likes has that selfie gotten on Instagram today? You lie to your spouse just so that you can keep on getting along with them so that they won't get upset with you. This is all the fear of man. And it struck me as I was reading through that list of reasons that we fear other people that throughout this book, Nehemiah has been familiar with each of them. As Nehemiah has been committed to his work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, we have seen his enemies try to humiliate him, haven't we? They have tried to get others in ridiculing him. 
They have even threatened to attack him. And yet Nehemiah has not let his fear of these very real threats dominate him or change his behavior. He has been unwaveringly committed to his task and has withstood all of these enemies time and time again. And so the question is, how? How is Nehemiah so brave? Is it because his parents instilled in him at an early age a very high sense of self-esteem? Is it because Nehemiah trusts in his own strategies, his foolproof plans for defeating these enemies? No. Here's the secret. Nehemiah knows that his enemies are powerful, but for as powerful as his enemies are, he knows that his God is even more powerful. And God was on his side. Proverbs 29.25 says that the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And elsewhere in many places, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Nehemiah fears the Lord. And this is another term that's worth defining. The fear of the Lord is not so much in the sense of being afraid of God. Although the book of Hebrews does say that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unreconciled sinners should appreciate that there is nothing more fearful in the whole universe than the wrath of their creator God for their sin. And that right fear of God should lead us to repentance. But for those of us who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who no longer fear his wrath, we are still to fear the Lord in the sense of esteeming God, of holding God in awe, of reverencing him and obeying his voice and no one else's. I love the title of Ed Welch's book. I've read that book actually a couple of times, but I think all I remember is the title. When people are big and God is small. Nehemiah had big enemies, and we all do, but we have an even bigger God. And the more that we can keep that right appreciation of God in our minds, the bigger that God is in our minds, the more we fear God, the more we can come to withstand our enemies and to not fall into the snare of the fear of man. So we see that in this chapter. Our passage this morning, it breaks up into three, uh, three sections. And in each one of those sections, we get a threat against the work of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. Every one of those sections, did you notice, is it ends with a statement about fear. And yet in every one of these sections, we see what it looks like if we place our trust in the Lord in the face of our enemies and how we escape the fear of man. So let's begin in verses 1 to 9. We see how Nehemiah responds to the threat of enemies coming from without. Verses 1 to 9 are enemies without. So verse 1 describes the state of the work up to this point. It's almost finished. The wall has been built up to its full height. There are no breaches in it. The only thing that's missing is the gates in the door. And so Nehemiah's enemies get desperate. 
Verse 2, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakeferim in the plain of Ono. Ono was about a day's journey away from Jerusalem. It was right on the border with two hostile territories, with Samaria and Ashdod. And on the surface, this may just look like these foreign leaders reaching out to Nehemiah to try and negotiate some kind of compromise. But Nehemiah knows that this is actually a trap. He says at the end of verse 2, they intended to do me harm. And now the text doesn't say how Nehemiah knows this. Maybe God revealed this to Nehemiah supernaturally. Or maybe Nehemiah was really, really discerning. Or maybe this was just obvious. Hey, Nehemiah, I, I know we've tried to kill you in the past, but why don't you come out of that nice walled city and meet us in the middle of nowhere and let's talk about it. Nehemiah says, oh no, oh no, not going to happen. Verse 3, he sends messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And there's so much in this response. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. In chapter 4, Nehemiah had called this work great and widely spread. By that he means this is a big project. This is over two miles worth of wall that they are rebuilding by hand. This is a big project. But this work is great in another sense. And that it is eternally significant. This is so much more than building a wall. This is Jerusalem. This is the geographic center of all of God's redemptive plans. This is the place where God had promised to make his name dwell forever. This is the place where God said he would establish the throne of his Messiah. And that all of the nations would come in and bow down to him. This was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was in ruins. And God had given it to Nehemiah to rebuild it. Nehemiah knows that by building this wall, he's doing nothing less than playing his part in the redemptive plan of God. This is a great work because it has been given to Nehemiah by an even greater God. And Nehemiah fears God so much that he's not going to let anything distract him from doing that work. Love what he says in verse 3, I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down. Now Jerusalem is up on a hill, on a mountain, and the plains of Ono are at sea level, so he would literally have to come down in elevation to, to meet these guys where they want to meet him. But, but some people read this and they think that Nehemiah is actually talking from on top of the wall, or even on top of a ladder. And I love that, that picture of Nehemiah just resolutely up on this ladder. He's got a trowel in one hand. He's got a sword at his side like we saw in chapter 4. And he says, I can't come down. If I come down, this work stops. And this is a great work. So here comes this other concern. And Nehemiah just refuses to engage with it. Not that it's not legitimate. Not that it's not serious. But he knows that if he gets off that ladder, the most important work stops. The more we fear God, the more we are dedicated to the work that God wants us to do. To obedience and to the furtherance of the mission that he has sent us out on. Church, we have a great work. We're not building a wall. We're not building a city. We're building a spiritual city. 
what the Bible calls the new Jerusalem, the church, the church that Christ has founded, the church that Christ is, is the chief architect of, the church that Christ is the cornerstone, the church that Christ is building through us, with us. Don't come down off the ladder to worry about other things if it means that that great work stops. Don't let your fear of being unpopular lead you into disobedience and sin. Don't let your anxiety for your children's achievements and their worldly success mean that you're not working on their growth and godliness and character. Don't let your fear about your career lead you to neglect the task of making disciples, of sharing the gospel, of of teaching your brothers and sisters and growing them in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that these other things aren't important, but they're not the most important. You can use your relationships, you can use your family, you can use your career as tools to build up the kingdom of God, or they can be distractions that lead you to coming down and the work stopping. Church, don't come down. Let me tell you this. The more you're concerned for God's work, the more you are committed, the more you are invested, the more you are praying about and thinking about how do I fulfill my role in the redemptive plan of God in building up his kingdom? How do I share the gospel? How do I teach and train up other disciples? The more you are focused on that, I think one byproduct of that is you just have less mental bandwidth to even be anxious about the things that you're currently anxious about right now. They come into their right perspective and you realize that they're not as significant as, they, as you actually think that they were. Because you're c- concerned about the most important thing. And you have a better filter to discern what is aiding me in this great work and what is distracting me from it. And if it's distracting you, don't come down. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. Focus on the kingdom of God and building the kingdom of God, and God's going to take care of everything else. Don't be anxious about these things that distract you from the great work. Don't come down. Nehemiah didn't come down because it would mean that the work stopped. So in verse 4, it says, They sent to me four times in this way. I answered them every time in the same manner. So in verse 5, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me, but this time he had an open letter in his hand. An open letter means it was unsealed, which at that time meant that it was public information. They were reading it everywhere they went. Everybody would know what this letter says. And what this letter says is a bunch of lies. It's a list of one slander after another saying that the whole reason that Nehemiah is building this wall is because he plans to rebel against the king or Xerxes. And these lies are intended to harm Nehemiah. They're intended to incite a response either from the king or from some of these other nations Verse 7, now the king will hear these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. 
A lie can do a lot of damage. Nehemiah perceives that that's what's going on. In verse 9, he knows this was meant to frighten the Jews. He says that Sambalat hoped that their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. Sambalat is trying to manipulate him with fear. He's hoping that Nehemiah and the Jews will be so afraid of the king's response that they'll back off from doing the great work. They will change their plans. They will compromise with their enemies in order to get them to take back these lies and the threat of harm that comes with it. Have you ever been the victim of unfair gossip or criticism? When I was working in college ministry, there was another college minister that uh, I found out was saying untrue things about our ministry, and it was spreading around. And, And this consumed my thoughts. This made me so anxious. It made me so angry. And all I wanted to do was, was go and find this guy and, and talk to him. And I wanted to go find all of the people that he had talked to and correct their opinion of me. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it because I was so afraid of the thought of somebody not liking me. Even people I didn't know. I wanted to take matters into my own hands. And, and thankfully, I had a meeting with one of my uh, ministry mentors who was about three times my age. And I told him everything that was going on and how concerned I was and what I wanted to do to make it right. And he gave me some really great advice I'll never forget. He said, Chase, time and truth are friends. Time and truth are friends. And he said, your reputation will defend itself. And by all of that, he meant, don't come down. Don't get caught up in this drama. Just keep trusting God to vindicate you. You just do what you are supposed to do. Keep on working hard in your ministry. Keep on living in a way that is above reproach. And time will reveal what is true. I think that's what Nehemiah does in verse 8. He responds by telling Sambalat what they both know is true. No such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. I love that. And then in verse 9, he prays. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. Really, I should say, Nehemiah prays again, because by my count, this is the fifth of 14 prayers recorded in the book of Nehemiah. That's more prayers than there are chapters in the book. Prayer is both how we express and grow in our trust in a big God. And I love the prayer here. Sambalat wanted the Jews, it says, to drop their hands from their work. And so what does Nehemiah pray? God, strengthen our hands. And he uses those strengthened hands to just keep on working. And he trusts God with the outcome. So that's how Nehemiah responds to enemies without. But what about enemies within? That's our next section, verses 10 to 14. Enemies within. He says, Now I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. And we know from the following verses that Shemaiah is a prophet living in Jerusalem. This is probably someone that was uh, a friend of Nehemiah, someone that Nehemiah was very uh, familiar with. And he invites Nehemiah into his home, and he gives Nehemiah a prophecy. This is at the end of verse 10. This is the prophecy. They are coming to kill you. 
They are coming to kill you by night. Who's coming to kill Nehemiah? Well, these enemies that he's been dealing with through the whole book. This prophecy is, look, it's going to happen tonight. They're going to come and kill you. And so what does this prophet tell Nehemiah to do? He proposes another meeting, just like in the last section. Let us meet together where? In the house of God, within the temple. And let us close the door of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Nehemiah, let's go take shelter, sanctuary in the temple. You'll be safe there. They won't kill you. And Nehemiah says, hang on. Wait a minute. He begins to realize that there's something wrong with this counsel. This is not good advice. He says in verse 11, should, should such a man as I run away? Nehemiah is the governor. He's been given an important task as the leader of God's people. He is their shepherd, and the welfare of the sheep is tied up in his leadership. Jesus says it's a bad shepherd that sees the wolves coming and runs away, just leaves the sheep to fend for themselves. If Nehemiah abandons his job, abandons his people to go save himself, what would that mean for the Jews? It would be their ruin. He says, should such a man as I run away? And then he adds, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah is not a priest, is what he means. Only the priests were allowed to go into the temple, especially the parts of the temple where the doors shut. If Nehemiah took this friend's advice... Yeah, he may find sanctuary to save his life, but he would be sinning against God in the process. And I think this is how Nehemiah comes to understand that this word that this prophet is speaking isn't a word from God, because God would never tell you to sin. Nehemiah realizes he's been betrayed. Verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. This is so sneaky. Sambalot and Tobiah want Nehemiah to be so afraid for his own life that he stops obeying God and he sins. He sins against his people and he sins against his God. And they wouldn't come to kill him, they would just use that sin to ruin his reputation so that all of the people would stop following him and the work of rebuilding the wall would cease. But Nehemiah sees the trap and he responds not in fear of his life but in fear of God. He knows what God's will is, he knows what God's law is and he won't even let his friends lead him into disobedience. And just like in the last section, he concludes this affair too with prayer, the sixth of 14 prayers in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. There's so much about Nehemiah's life that calls to mind Judah's greater shepherd, but I think this instance especially it it reminds us of a conversation that Jesus had with one of his close friends 
It's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. It's right after the Apostle Peter gives his confession that Jesus is the Christ. Right on the tails of that confession, that identity of who Jesus is, the one in the redemptive plan that was going to come and sit on his throne, Jesus begins to tell his disciples a prophecy about his own death. And this is a true prophecy. Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer many things at the hands of his enemies. And he'll be crucified. And he'll die. And do you remember what Peter does when Jesus tells him that prophecy? He rebukes Jesus. He says, no way. This cannot happen. We have to protect you. You need to protect yourself. We can't let you die. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 16, 23. Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, man is bigger to you right now than God. And that's satanic. Peter feared Jesus' death. But Jesus feared God. Even when his enemies were all around him, when they ridiculed him, even when his closest friends betrayed him, even when he was tempted by the devil himself, even when his very life was at stake, the Son of God knew how great was the work that God had given him to do. Jesus knew why he had come, to play the pivotal role in the redemptive plan of God. And nothing was going to distract Jesus from that great work. When Jesus was on the cross and they were crucifying him, they mocked him. They said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come on down? Save yourself if you are who you say you are. And Jesus could have, couldn't he? Jesus said if he wanted to, he could call an army of angels to come and fight for him. He could have come down off of that cross. He could have saved himself, just like Nehemiah could have defended himself against Sambalat's lies, or, or he could have run into the temple and shut the doors, or he could have come down off of that ladder. Jesus could have taken himself off the cross, and he would have lived, but the great work would have stopped. It's like Jesus said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Just like Nehemiah, Jesus on that cross prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he said the most beautiful words, it is finished. The work was done. And he breathed his last. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He didn't run away. He died for us. And just like God's strong hand was with his people to bring them up out of their exile in Babylon, to put them back into their land, just like God's strong hand was with Nehemiah to help them bring up out of the rubble this wall that had been torn down, God the Father's strong hand was with his son, and three days later he raised Jesus from the dead. And this, this right here, church, this gospel is our greatest comfort in the face of our enemies.
Jesus feared God all the way to the end. So that we who are so often afraid can be saved. When Jesus died on that cross and when he rose from the grave, he defeated our enemies. And so we don't have to fear. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus became a man like us, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You hear what that's saying? That Jesus' incarnation and his life of perfect obedience working on our behalf, his death on the cross and his resurrection served the purpose of defeating all of our greatest enemies, our sin, the devil, and death. Jesus defeated our sin. On that cross, he paid the penalty that our sin deserved. So no longer do we fear God's wrath. No longer are we enemies of God. We aren't afraid of God. So now we fear our God as our Lord, as a big God who is on our side because Jesus has defeated sin. And Jesus defeated Satan. Yes, the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He still tries to accuse us of our sins and our weaknesses. He still tries to lie to us and to tempt us to have our mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. But we can rely on the one who resisted the devil's temptation. We can trust in the one who has crushed the serpent's Head. We remember that our enemy, as Colossians 2 says, has been disarmed. Satan has nothing on us. He can't accuse us of our sin because Jesus defeated that too. So we don't have to fear even ridicule or shame. And Jesus defeated death. And when it comes down to it, death is the scariest thing there is, isn't there? And all the other things that we can worry about all of the things that other people could do to us. There's nothing worse than somebody killing us. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 says, that we were all slaves to the fear of death, but no longer because Jesus was raised from the dead. It means he conquered death. That means if one man can be raised from the dead, we can all be raised from the dead, that Jesus died our death on our behalf. So even if we die, I love what we sang earlier, I don't fear the final night. For death will be the door to life. And when you take that away, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Nothing. There's nothing that can happen to you in this life that will undefeat death. You are going to live forever. No matter what people try to do to you, no matter how they try to hurt you, even if their punches land, it's not going to take away your eternal life. Death has been defeated. And knowing that, knowing that Christ has already defeated our enemies, we have hope. We don't have to fear. That can get us through 
so much in this life. That can get us through everything in this life. So just like Nehemiah, we have all the more reason to trust God, that God will strengthen our hands. God will remember our enemies and he will remember us. And so we can just keep on working. And that's what Nehemiah does. And then just like that, with God's help, the work's finished. Verses 15 to 19, we see enemies withstood. Verse 15 says, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And there's so much in this little verse, this brief, ironically brief verse. The wall was finished in 52 days. 52 days of exhausting manual labor, which was in the summer months, by the way. 52 days of being under the constant threat of attack. 52 days of temptation to give up the work. 52 days and the wall is finished. This might be one of the most impressive feats of engineering in the ancient world. And Israel's neighbors knew it. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that so awesome? In verse 9, Sanballat is trying to frighten the Jews. In verse 13, Shemaiah is trying to make Nehemiah afraid. But who's fearful now? Their enemies. And who are they afraid of? Are they afraid of Nehemiah? No. Are they afraid of the Jews? No. Verse 16 says, they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. That's the point of this passage. This passage moves from the Jews being tempted to be afraid of their enemies to their enemies being afraid of God. And this record of God's faithfulness to Nehemiah, it should lead us to a good, right fear of God as well. If God can build this wall in 52 days in spite of all of this opposition, can't we trust in God? Don't we have a great God? Even more, if God can, through the death of his son and through raising his son from the dead, can't God do anything? Anything else in this life is is smaller than that. We have a great God. We have a big God. Verse 15 of Nehemiah 6, it's so brief. But for all of its brevity, this was a momentous day for the Jews. I wish I could have been there to see how they celebrated, how they praised God. The wall was finished. The great work was done. But it wasn't the end. You'll notice that this isn't even the end of the book. We still have seven chapters left in this book. But Nehemiah did exactly what he was called to do. He played his part in the redemptive plan of God. He built the wall. But a wall can only keep your enemies out. It doesn't take your enemies away. So verse 17 begins, Moreover, in those days, that is to say that in the days of the building project and then afterwards, And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to describe a scheme, this time of Tobiah the Ammonite. Scheming of his enemies to again try and and get them to quit that great redemptive work. Tobiah knew that he couldn't do anything 
to mount an attack on Jerusalem. The wall was finished, and so he worked his way into Jerusalem through the nobility, through flattery, through marriage, and through oaths. And all of this was with the aim of undermining Nehemiah's leadership from the inside. And look at verse 19. It ends. Tobias sent letters to make me what? Afraid. It just never stops. It never stops. In church, it won't stop. From the beginning, God's people have had an enemy. And those enemies will not stop trying to derail God's redemptive plan. So what does that mean? Don't be surprised that you have enemies. Don't be surprised that you're threatened and that trials come upon you. We are in the already and the not yet. Yes, Jesus has defeated sin and the devil and death. But he has not yet made those enemies his footstool. So until Christ comes again, to finish the victory that he's already won on the cross, we have big enemies, but we have an even bigger God. And the more I thought about it, the more I just love the way that this chapter ends. It's just with that word, afraid. They're trying to make me afraid. It doesn't tell you how Nehemiah responds. It doesn't really tell you what happens. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. But what do you think happens? How do you think Nehemiah will respond? The same way that he has. By fearing, not his enemies, but his big God. And working hard as he waits for God's redemption. And so should we. Church, don't come down. Let's pray. Lord, you are a big God. You are a great God and greatly to be praised. God, I pray that you would show yourself to us in all of your greatness so that these big problems in our lives, these big enemies that we face, these things that are so scary, they seem small by comparison. Lord, so that we would all the more trust in you. And I pray that you would strengthen our hands. I pray that you would Commit us to this work that you are doing in building your church of saving souls and preparing us to live with you forever. To end that hope, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond now.
Gospels, Jesus talks a lot about anxiety. And I've been so comforted by that because that tells me that Jesus knows how hard this struggle is. As part of my own fight against anxiety and the fear of man, I have studied and meditated on all of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels about anxiety, especially Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him rather who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you're here or listening and you're not a Christian, and yet you too struggle with what we've been talking about today, the fear of man, I want to tell you in no uncertain terms that you have a much bigger problem. The Bible says that you are God's enemy and you cannot withstand God. Don't be afraid of the people that can only kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can kill body and soul in hell. That's why Jesus came and died. He died for you. If you will believe in him, if you will repent and fear God above everything else. And in an instant, God goes from being your enemy to your father. And in the verses right after verse 28, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
church, God loves you. He cares for you. Fear not. If you have questions about this gospel that we have shared this morning, we would love to talk to you about that. Please email us, info at dscabq.com. Church, if you're afraid of anything, we can take it to the Lord in prayer. Email us. We've got a prayer team. We would love to pray for you and help you any way that you can to fight this battle, all of us together as we continue to work. So I commend you to go in God's grace and don't come down off that ladder.